Blog Talk Radio. of the Dan Brown novel of the same name, and the title of our show will be spoken frequently by me. Uh, this may be because I'm actually thinking about movies in some of these terms. This struck me as a terrible adaptation of the source material, which was not great to begin with. And it's bad because of Hollywood. This is one of those movies that is bad because of Hollywood changes, because of studio notes, because of executives who have jobs, because of who their uncles were, some such nonsense. And I'm going to yell about all of that. Here to tell you that I'm wrong, that I take this stuff too seriously, that I use my brain too much, and that I am slowly but surely destroying the fabric of entertainment by intellectualizing it is Mark Radlich. Mark, how you doing this evening? Dude, can't you just, like, take some Ritalin so the voices go away, smoke a bowl so your worries go away, and just enjoy life? Life is to be enjoyed. Suck from the glass of lemonade that is life, man, and just chill. I wish to strike you about the head and shoulders repeatedly with a giant salmon and then shove you into a bear enclosure. <laughs> eh, you wouldn't be the first person to associate me with bears. Hey, gay fat man jokes. <laughs> Somewhat ironic, actually. I, my brothers and I had a conversation about bears not too long ago that actually did deviate into the discussion about that term as a title for a breed of, for a, you know, a specific type of homosexual <laughs> man. <laughs> I didn't know they came in breeds, Robert Winfrey. Do tell. I, bear, look, there are different breeds of bears, and my wires got crossed there a little bit. No, all homosexual men are human. 
good. Glad that we the established best of my that. Knowledge. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Plug. Um, <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm a little punchy tonight. I got to be honest with you. Oh, good. That'll make this all the more amusing. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, I actually, I actually did enjoy the movie. We'll, we'll talk about that as we get into it. But I enjoyed it. Like, here's what I thought about. Here's what I thought about immediately after it was over. I was just like, huh. This was kind of like watching a Jason Bourne movie, only I wasn't bored and there was a lot less punching and more like, you know, and more mystery slash looking for clues kind of a thing. There were kind of puzzles, less puzzles apparently than in previous movies, according to the critics, but there were puzzles to solve. And I was thinking about, you know, my complaints about the Batman movies, about when you have a director who thinks Batman is all about punching people and not about solving mysteries and looking for clues and being the world's greatest detective, I tend to throw a big fanboy tantrum because I prefer the world's greatest detective Batman and not the ninja punching Batman. What that, how that relates to this, here you had one of these frenetic type uh, Jason Bourne kind of movies, you know, these, these thrillers, um, mystery thrillers, but it was more about uh, puzzles and, and clues and solving a mystery than it was about punching your way from one end of the film to the other. And maybe that's where I'm different than the pe- than the 43% of the people <laughs> who did not like the film, or the 43 that did, and the 57 that didn't, uh, and the critics who gave this thing a rotten rating, which we will in fact talk about. But that, 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 that was a personal preference for me, and I don't expect everybody to be in line with that. But I, I much prefer to see um, non-punchy, non-ninja types trying to get through dangerous scenarios using what's left of their wits than a kung fu movie. So what I'm hearing is you're a big fan of the National Treasure movies. I really am. I I don't even remember the second one all that well, but I love the first one. I'll have to discuss that one day on Long Road to Ruin. If they ever get around to making the third one. Well, if they don't, we'll just... I mean, we've done a couple of uh, duel movies. You know, only two. Only two. Duologies. It was right there on the tip of my tongue. It's a a weird word, unless you've actually, like, heard it and used it in context. It tends to not... Quite I was convinced as I was saying it, it wasn't a real word. Can you believe that? <laughs> I was like, duo. No, it, it is. It's weird. But duo being, you know, two. If a trilogy is three, then duology is two. Right. What's weird is I can, I can quadrilogy, I'm fine with. Trilogy, of course, that's a common one. Duology, and I'm like, no, that can't possibly be a real word. It's a real word. It is a real uh, word. All right, so again. This is another instance of Mark and I having very different experiences with the movie, which always makes for good times. And the big thing I want to touch on later, and I'm saying this right now so that I can remind myself and Mark can remind me if I forget. Uh, Specifically for this story, I read the book uh, by Dan Brown. Looks up a burden! What? Damn it. I have to say that in a different accent instead of the accent that I've been saying it in, because that's now the second time on a podcast that I've yelled out, books are for burning in a funny voice, and the person thought I was making chicken noises or something, but didn't understand what the hell I was saying. 
Let's see if I can do this right now. Once books up are burning. Really, what you need to do is learn how to say it in German, because the German language <laughs> is... The German language is great in many ways, but uh, it is quite harsh uh, to the ear. I was going to say, it's it's harsh. Russian, too, actually. I disagree on Russian. Uh, I've come around on Russian as a language being a lot softer. You think so, huh? Well, I mean, it certainly can be, depending on who's speaking. But, like, the phonetic structure of the language for Russian, I think, is a lot softer than it's usually given credit for. Okay. So, according to Google Translate, hang on. Uh, hang on. Okay. Now, <laughs> say it in German. Here we go. Here we go. I, I got it. I got it. Booster Simpson Brennan. I have a friend who served his mission in Germany. I'll have to get him to give us a sound recording. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, seriously, if you want to ever, like, understand how harsh the German language is, look up their words for both butterfly and ambulance. <laughs> will do, will do. All right, I think we're video done where someone now. goes through... Like words in English, French, Spanish, and then German. And it's hilarious because German is not one of the Romance languages. Mm-hmm. No, no, it is not. Uh, but Italian all right. is. Hey, where's Italian the movie is. Place? This movie is primarily set in Italy. And. Hey! Again, I read the book specifically for this show. I've actually read The Inferno, Dante's poem a couple of times because I like it. I read it once. I read it during the summer between my junior and senior years because that along with uh, mythology by Edith something. I can never remember her last name. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Haven't we established on this show, because I know we have on Long Road to Ruin, that in terms of judging the movie, the books, the source material just doesn't matter. So why do you insist on reading the books and annoying yourself? Because there, there's two reasons for that. One, while the material, the source material does not matter in the sense of where's Tom Bombadil, that absolutely does not matter. There's a reason Tom Bombadil was sub- was summarily and very quickly excised from the screenplays for Fellowship of the Ring. I have no problem with that. I understand the difference between the mediums. Same with comic books. You're not going to get a one-to-one adaptation, and when you do, they suck. See the killing joke. Or don't. Just hear Mark's argument. But they do matter in the sense of what makes them work. Uh, they matter. I mean, again, I understand that you get internal monologue and you get descriptors and you get history in a book much differently than you do in a movie. So you have to make the necessary adjustments. But the source material does matter in terms of tone, in terms of what is this trying to say, if anything. 
uh, in terms of, you know, iconic moments, characterizations. There are things that when you adapt a bit of source material, whatever it happens to be, movie, television, sorry, remake a movie, in which case you still need to know what makes it work. Magnificent Seven remake being an example of not understanding what made the original work. A book, a television series, and I will yell copiously about that when we get to Chips next year. And I call for the summary banishment of Dax Shepard from the planet Earth. Oh. Mark, you cannot justify that man's existence. Just don't even try. I'm not going to because I want to get off this podcast at a decent hour tonight. But I could have wanted. Uh, yeah, but my point being that whatever you're, whatever you're adapting, there are things that you have to understand about it to understand how it works properly. So if you change names, if you omit characters, if you omit sequences that are not necessary when adapting a, say, 250-page novel into a two-hour movie, that's understandable. I accept that. I'm not yelling about where's Tom Bombadil. And I will not be yelling about where's Tom Bombadil when I get to a little bit of compare and contrast about source material to film. I will be yelling about... Oh, wait, Frodo doesn't get to Mount Doom and Sauron wins? <laughs> because that's, because that's kind of what we get here. Sort of the from hell experience where it's, the, it's named after the source material in name only? Yeah, yeah kind of. Um, and, source material in name only? Yeah, it's, and that's, that's why I like to understand the compare and contrast elements of this because again i'm not the biggest fan of the book i wasn't overly impressed by it and i didn't like the movie and i don't think the two are related in the sense that i didn't like the book therefore i don't like the movie i don't like the book on its own merits i don't like the movie on its own merits but how they managed to how they changed it why they changed it and this is probably in my head because for the last couple of weeks Mark and I, and as well as a couple of other people, Sean Comer and Benjamin Cologne, have been on The Long Road to Ruin talking about the Hannibal Lecter movies. So the discussion and the thought process behind proper adaptation of source material, in that case novels, to screen is very much in my head. So when it came <laughs> to this, I just had, I just, okay, let's see what they changed. Let's see why they changed it. Because I don't need a one-to-one adaptation, certainly not of something as you know, superficial as a Dan Brown novel. All right, look, when we get into, there are certain materials that you get into, and if you change something, you darn well better know why you're changing it and make the appropriate changes. This isn't one of them. If you make a few changes, okay. But you, well, the correct reason to change something is because you polled a lot of people and you showed some uh, pre-screening Shut to up. them. And- Stop that. <laughs> what? Focus groups Isn't mean that, nothing to me. Is that not the right answer? I understand. That is not I was the under right the impression answer. That you, I was under the impression that the only reason to change a film is because your focus group uh, gave you the data that gave you the, uh, sent you in that direction. See? Uh. <laughs> See, this is why movie-making by committee fails. (laughs) Because you try to please everyone, and everyone winds up unhappy. 
which I feel happened a great deal in this particular movie. Like, we're going to please everyone, and nobody cares. <laughs> that, that is something. I mean, um, when we talk about the money, we need to get into where this is successful and where it hasn't been and what in the hell happened. It's successful in Italy it's because it's set in Italy. I feel like we need to talk about it more, but we're not up to the money yet. You want me to play the money theme? I can. No, no. I, I, look, it, based on the numbers, no one who's listening to this podcast actually saw the movie, so I do have to. <laughs> there is a bit of an obligation here to explain the plot so that everyone can at least follow along. Can I just say that, that Boo and Medea Halloween is still making more than Inferno? Only now, now, please cut me off. And, please cut me off and just get on with this. Uh, Medea's Halloween is doing well domestically, but nobody outside of the United States likes Tyler Perry movies. The thing's global take um, is like 53.2 million, and 53 of that is from is the United States. Okay, I'm looking at the what, what I'm looking. Okay, I'm just looking at the Monday numbers. Guys. Excuse me. On Monday, October 31st, it made almost two million dollars in one day, whereas Inferno made um, uh, almost 14 million. Yeah, no, it's yeah, the, this movie, and we're going to talk about it. All right. Um, for the plot synopsis, here we go. We open with a man committing suicide. Good way to start a movie. <laughs> I'm only, that's only a quasi-facetious comment. There are plenty of great movies that open with suicide. Waka waka. Uh, but then we jump immediately into following Tom Hanks, who plays Robert Langdon. As he awakens with retrograde amnesia in a hospital in Florence, he is chased by an assassin. He is aided as he escapes by a doctor, Sienna Brooks. He finds within his possession a Faraday pointer, which is kind of like a handheld projector, containing an altered version of Botticelli's Map of Hell, which was inspired, of course, by Dante's the first third of Dante's epic poem, The Divine Comedy, uh, about Dante's journey through hell. A tremendous piece of literature, by the way. You you should read it. Find a good translation. It turns out that the gentleman who killed himself at the beginning of the movie was a billionaire biochemical engineer who was fixated on humans' overpopulation of the earth and wanted to do something about it. And he developed a plague. They arrive at the conclusion that he developed a plague because some random article on the internet speculated that maybe during his seclusion, he developed a plague. Like seriously. (laughs) I missed that detail. I'm a detail oriented person. And yeah, that one made me want to throw something. Well, this random internet opinion speculates that possibly he developed a plague. Really? And how did you arrive at this conclusion? Well, the bunnies bring me my medication. Dunn told me that in exchange for carrots, this here fellow was hidden up 
and he was going to bring about the end of days by summoning forth Jormungandr from the bowels of the earth. Piss off. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> anyway, they arrive at this conclusion that he made a plague, and, well, hey, he did, because it's on the internet, therefore it must be true. And they start looking for the plague following the series of complicated clues across parts of Florence while they are chased by the World Health Organization and a barely known assassin working for a group called the Consortium, which is a private security firm who had been hiding Mr. Zobrist while he developed the plague. They didn't know that, though. They didn't know he was trying to kill most of the population of the earth. No, they didn't. And the only interesting character, and I use that phrase interesting very loosely in this case, is actually the leader of that group, the provost, who has the best line of the whole movie. (laughs) Isn't that line great? Young people are so disappointing. I find they become tolerable around 35. Yep. I immediately I immediately posted that on Facebook. It's now my new it's now like my, my new like mantra. I'm sticking with suck at bipeds personally, but that's just me. <laughs> well, we've all got our own thing. Uh anyway, as they are being chased and go looking through these clues, the person following them on behalf of the consortium dies. The provost realizes that we've been protecting a uh, what's the word? I mean, calling him a homicidal maniac actually undersells what he's trying to do. Again, he wants to wipe out 50% of the Earth's population. So homicidal okay, can we, can we just stop for a minute? Well, can we, can we talk about that for a second? This isn't, A, the first time in film or even in real life, the concept of we need to reduce the population has come up. This is not the first time someone has thought about doing something that, I mean, first of all, this is sort of a trope in films, as as often as it's been shown, where someone goes, for the betterment of all humanity, half of us are going to need to die. And whether it's through nuclear bombs or through war, see 1984, um, through virus is, is a popular one now. But, I mean, this has happened before. So it, this isn't the most original plot I've ever seen. Um, nor is this idea an original idea. The fact that they were treating it like one was a little odd to me. Um, but, I, you know, but I guess Martin alongside that, that, you know, that he was... Stupid and insulting at the same time. <laughs> I was going to say, but the fact that he had actually, like, created the means to actually carry this out, I guess you have to take it somewhat seriously, or, you, you know, you don't have a movie. But... I mean, I just I, I just want to say that there's a debate to be had about what to do about this planet, and we've been having it for decades. Um, and like I said, people, smart people, people who are not homicidal maniacs, have said out loud to other colleagues, you know, in the uh, in their professions, half of us need to go in order to create sustainability. This is not sustainable. A planet of billions with, you know, only X amount of agrable land and no way to create food from ether yet is not sustainable. So, you know, I, 
I think if you're going to start some, if you're going to write a movie and you're going to start with a concept or a theme, this is as good as any. I don't, I don't think we, we, you should poke holes in it. Oh, no, I have no problem okay. with the basic premise of guy sees planet overpopulated, guy wishes to take action. I mean, like you said, it's been done before. It's done better in the book, but uh, I'll get into that later. Anyway, they follow a series of clues, such as anagrams uh, scattered throughout that painting, uh, a poem that was scrawled on the back of Dante Alighieri's death mask, uh, the uh, the giant misdirect. Uh, look, Dan Brown as an author is the rough equivalent of M. Night Shyamalan in terms of we must have twists. What is these? Uh, so they get misdirected to Venice. They go to Istanbul, where it actually where the plague is actually being housed. It comes out that Siena actually wants to release the plague that the consortium had set up. Robert Langdon to believe that he was helping them and they were the good guys when in fact they were the bad guys. Uh, the FBI knew the CIA was setting up the local police with the NSA and that then the Secret Service would swoop in and take credit for everything. And stop me if you've heard that one before. <laughs> uh, we get a final race into the cistern underground in Istanbul, Turkey. They stop the plague. Uh, Robert Langdon is briefly reunited with a former lover who now runs the WHO in an utterly unnecessary love interest. I mean, seriously, not in the book, it's not needed Hollywood. for the movie. That Hollywood whole... totally needed. No, that damn you Hollywood for your unnecessary romantic interests. It added nothing and it man detracted. Must love, man must love woman, Robert. Don't you understand? And I'm not just saying you have to love a you could love a man too. I, mean, I don't want to be sexist or anti-gay. I'm just saying that we as Americans want we our people. We don't need in love movies. interests for every movie. Yes, we do. We, no. we demand. We do not at all require this. Don't you remember? Even in Rambo, First Blood Part Two, he found love. And then love died, and he went on a killing spree with a with a machine gun and took on the entire Viet Cong. First of all, he took on a substantial portion of the Vietnamese army. It was all second. Of, second of all, that actually made more sense in the novelization of the movie than it did in the movie itself. <laughs> Third, the best Rambo movies, in this instance, being the first and last don't have traditional romantic interests because they're not necessary to the story. I would beg to differ with you. I believe Brian Dennehy was in love with Rambo. Uh, just, just stop. <laughs> That's why he tried to get him out of town. He was clearly trying. This was the early 80s. He didn't 70s. know how to quit him. Exactly. Now you understand that Brian Dennehy's sheriff character was suppressing his gay feelings for John Rambo. I'm There's sure. no other way to explain there is no other way to explain that shower scene, by the way. Sure there is. Other than the Small nope, Town Small Town jails in the eighties. Yeah, you you shot gay. someone down with a hose. You work in the penal system. Yay! And if, and if we tried that now, one, we'd be 
drawn and quartered too. It would be hey. again. The important factor there is small town jail, middle America, early eighties. As opposed to big town jail, one of the largest in the country, um, in a in a fairly big city in 2016. Yeah, there's just a few differences there. Anyway, they were all gay in Rambo. Every last one of them. That was a love story. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> Go on. Anyway, uh, Sienna winds up uh, committing suicide, trying to set off bombs that will rupture the plastic bag that contains the plague. It doesn't work. There's an unnecessary fight sequence that's partially underwater by two men who know nothing about close quarters combat and made my – that whole scene made me hurt, like physically made me hurt, not in the good way. I don't mind feeling – you know, if I'm watching a good fight sequence and I feel it, that's good. This was just like, oh, you, you are both so bad at this. Just so bad. Uh, the plague is not released. Langdon and and in our, I suppose, the closest thing to a melancholy ending we're going to get in a big-budget Hollywood movie. Uh, Langdon and Elizabeth Sinski, again, his former lover, decide that, no, we still can't be together. Oh, sad panda. And... Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he, his final act is he returns Dante Alighieri's death mask to the museum in Florence that he actually stole it from and returns to teaching symbology and art history at Harvard. Uh, this movie is not good. This is just not a good movie. <laughs> I gave it three stars on Rotten Tomatoes. Look, you were generous. Unnecessarily said, generous. This was a popcorn thriller uh, in Manila. Um, if you, I mean, look, I'm not going to, I've read a lot of religious history books. I've read a lot about the history of religion. Um, I've read a lot about Gnosticism. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the greatest memory for detail retention. So, this is where I get in trouble with people like Winfrey or my father who have, you know, for detail have memories like lockboxes or elephants um, where I can make a solid argument. But then when I have to go back and pull the data uh, to back up my point, I have, I have some difficulty. Could be because I fell on the back of my head as a baby and damaged part of my brain and, you know, traumatic brain injury. Things do happen. Could be I'm just one of those people with a shitty memory. I don't know. But the point being that, while I may have at one point known some of the knowledge that is being monkeyed with in this movie, it's not something that I'm consciously thinking about. Uh, so I can just sort of enjoy whatever uh, techno babble is laid out in front of me. And as long as it's not so far out of the realm of possibility uh, and, and there's a story being told with it, I'll enjoy myself. And, and here's the thing. I like the concept of his religious slash historical puzzles and clues leading to uh, an end goal. You know, I like the concept of the, of the treasure hunt, you know, uh, that sort of thing. 
The Midnight Run, if you've ever seen that movie in the 80s. Uh, you know, you read a clue and it goes to the next place and you read another clue and you have to figure out where that clue is and you go to that place and, until you finally get to the end. Um, and as I said before, because he doesn't spend a, a majority of the movie in action sequences uh, or, or in combat sequences, I suppose, action, but the action is more just running from people. Uh, I, I enjoyed and it. Boy, you know, is there I a like, lot of it. And boy, do we need shaky cam and quick cuts. You know, like the National Treasure and, and some others that sort of follow in this in this vein. I'm more interested in watching a man try to figure out a puzzle than I am in watching him punch stuff. Unless it's Rocky. Then, then it's different. But, um, so, I enjoyed it. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things, and Robert's going to wonder why he bothers to do this podcast with me. Number one, I honestly didn't see Felicity turning on him. Felicity Jones. Selena, Selena, Serena. What the fuck's her name? Sienna. Sienna. Thank you. Sienna. I didn't see Sienna turning on him. When she shuts the gate on him in Venice, um, and there's that long, drawn-out... Flashback. uh, Thank you. Flashback. Sorry, I'm a little tired. There's that long, drawn-out flashback that shows that she was actually in a relationship with the Ben Zobris character, and you know, he does a little treasure hunt with her and they're talking about this philosophy of overpopulation and what to do about it. I was like, oh, well, see that coming. Um, more, more so because she, she was set up as the young, chippy uh, female lead in the movie. And I was surprised that they made her a villain. But they did. And I, it was just sufficient enough shock to me to go, huh, okay, I wonder where they're going with this. What I was not shocked by was when they found out that the black guy was, was the villain and that the old white woman wasn't. Like, oh, that I saw coming a mile away. It was just a matter of when they were going to finally do the old switcheroo. Um, the stuff with the, with, you know, with the head of the consortium, the Indian fella, he was a fun character, and what, what they gave him to do was interesting, um, you know, on a very basic level, on a very surface level. And... You know, Tom Hanks is getting a lot of shit in this movie, and maybe rightly so, but I thought his performance was just Jim Dandy. You know, I thought it was absolutely adequate. You know, I've seen him play the character in two other movies. It, he was fine. You know, as far as a guy who was tricked into believing he'd been shot in the head and he's trying to recover his memories and figure some shit out along the way and being chased, Tom Hanks did an adequate job. I don't think he did a, you know, it was an unbelievable performance. I don't think anyone here really gave a bad performance as such. I think they were carrying out the material that they were given. So, you know, was this a particularly deep movie? No, it was a popcorn thriller with some religious slash historical overtones. And uh, as some critics have called it, a trip through various museums, which for me is fun. But if that's not your bag or you know details about the stuff they're talking about that, uh, that they managed to bomb in this movie that, that, that they did not get right, I can see where people didn't like it. I think the critics, you know, I think a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, is a, especially given what's, a, what's ahead of it, <clears throat> Ghostbusters, um, is a Look, harsh. Ghostbusters was marketed in such a way that no critic wanted to actually say, no, this is awful for fear of being called a misogynist. No, no, but that's my point. If we're being, if we're being honest, there's no possible way this was worse than Ghostbusters. I'm sorry. It's not. And I like Ghostbusters. Nothing that I have seen is worse than Ghostbusters. 
I mean, Medea. I gotta, I gotta pull it up real quick. But I, I think I sent this to you guys earlier um, in our Facebook chat. I think Medea currently holds a higher uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, aggregate critic score than Inferno. Yeah, by a hot twenty-three, by by a hot three percent. So, boo, a Medea Halloween, which is as close to modern black exploitation. Well, you, know, you can't I, criticize it that much unless, because if you do, you're a racist. I don't give a shit. Come at me, bro. Look, neither do I. I Criticism, it has to be beyond that if it's to be fair, objective, to the extent that we can make it, and meaningful. I don't care that Ghostbusters was full of women. It sucked. Let me give some comparisons here, okay? So, Inferno is currently sitting at a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics fucking hate this movie for some odd reason. I'm like, there's nothing to hate about it. It was really it's nothing stupid. It's, it's stupid. It's needlessly fast-paced. The editing is poor. The characterizations are non-existent. The narrative makes no sense. Makes no, sorry, not no sense. The narrative is a bit stilted. They throw in pointless studio notes for no reason other than studio notes, and it and it drags the overall film down. Right. I still it's think it deserves that. It's not, it, look, is it getting unfairly treated a little bit? Yeah, maybe. It's still not good. Okay. I may, look, if you want to argue that it shouldn't be certified fresh, I'll take, I'll take that. But, let me, but this is what I'm trying to say. So Troll, the animated feature about the little dolls with the, with the freaking hair is sitting at 78% on Rotten, on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, you can't criticize part. kids' movies. <laughs> Boo, a Medea Halloween, which is pretty much modern blackface, 23%. Um, Ouija, Origin of Evil, is certified fresh at 82%. What the fuck, I will def- Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me defend Ouija just very briefly for as far as its rating goes. Mm-hmm. No major critics... Uh, reviewed Ouija. The only reviews you're seeing from that are going to the reviews you see for that movie are primarily going to be from smaller publications, uh, specifically the horror themed ones that have a slightly different take. I don't think you're going to find a lot of the major recognized critics having reviewed that movie at all. So the data is probably yeah. skewed. By the way, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, 47%. Currently. It's going to go down. <laughs> anyway, so all I'm saying is, you know, it, it's, it, there are movies that are meant to make you think. There are movies that are meant to just entertain you to watch. You know, as Eddie Izzard said, you know, American movies are made in such so that you'll drink soda and eat popcorn and take a few hours off of life. And I think that movie succeeds, this movie succeeds in doing that. So why go to town bashing it over the head? Uh, I don't understand. But, you know, I've also been accused of being a little too easy on film. So maybe it's just me. Well, a lot of the issues that I would have if I dug into the Inferno criticisms are probably the double standards. No, this movie sucks, but Ghostbusters was a cinematic triumph. All right, no, get out. <laughs> I mean, look, you may be a little bit soft on movies. I may be unnecessarily harsh. I accept both of those things might be true. At least you and I are consistent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will, if something is shit, I'll tell you it's shit. 
I don't know. You did defend swing. Transformers. It wasn't shit. Sorry. It was. It okay. really was. It was not. But we're not here to talk about that. Um, God, I defended that movie to death. In any case, uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say about the movie uh, in particular. Like I said, I... Uh, I will say this. Here, here, the things that I liked. I liked Tom Hanks' acting. I thought he was fine. I thought Felicity Jones was fine. I thought, all, I thought everyone performed well, as I said. I thought the scenes leading them around, when, when they got to stop and sort of examine the artifacts or clues and, that, and then got to draw a conclusion... I especially liked when they were in Venice and realized they were in the wrong city. And he was like, whoops, we've got less than no time left, and we have to go to Istanbul, not Constantinople. I, I particularly enjoyed that. And then that leads to the big double cross, um, which I didn't see coming, as I said. So all, all that was fine. Here's what I did not like. Um, I wasn't particularly wazooey about the ending. I felt like that went on forever. Um, to get to get to a place where uh, you knew it was going to. But you go. don't understand. The was... nameless grunt has to survive being stabbed in the neck for the climactic fight sequence in waist high water with Tom Hanks. I mean, don't get me wrong. I they were dragging it out so much and they were throwing so many obstacles in everyone's way that I honestly thought they were going to be brave enough to actually release the virus. <laughs> Here's a spoiler you know, for those of you who <laughs> haven't read the book. They do. Oh, do they? Okay. I'll explain the Hollywood I will explain the differences when I get to that segment. Keep going with what you liked. Um, I actually did like the non-romantic ending. I think the acknowledgement that both of these people have these careers and they can't really get out of their own way for love, because love always triumphs in the end, except when it doesn't. And so it didn't. No, if only they just removed the entirety of the romantic subplot, we would have been fine. No, why? Why? I think it gave the character a add? bit more depth. What did it add? It was utterly unnecessary. Oh, that's no, that's not true. That's that's annoying that you're saying that because here you because Robert Langdon is sort of presented as a sort of like Aspie religious uh, know-it-all, and at least this gave him regret. You don't ever get that. I, I never got that sense in the movie The Da Vinci Code, and I don't remember enough of Angels and Demons. Besides, I thought I I, I think I remember hating it. It, it, that was another one. I was like, oh my God, you know, so the Vatican knew the FBI was setting them up the whole time. Like, I, I honestly was so utterly confused and annoyed by angels and demons that I only remember negative things about it. Um, Which is odd, because I tend to think it's the best of the three movies. There's a shock. Um, but I don't think Robert Langdon got enough characterization in the previous two movies. Maybe I need to rewatch them, but at least this gave him a sense of regret. You know, it did show that there was another side to him because in because embedded in the idea that I chose my career over a woman, that tells you about somebody. There are intrinsic details about their life and the way that they think that are embedded in that kind of decision making. I actually thought it was kind of subtle and nice, you know, that he's not just running around the world solving puzzles and that's all he knows how to do. Or they didn't make him some sort of like developmentally delayed, socially awkward weirdo. He's just somebody who, this is his life, this is where it took him, and he lost out on love. That's kind of sad. 
Again, I don't think it was necessary. I think it was a studio note. It was just, hey, this guy's been in, this is the third movie for this guy. He needs love. (laughs) We don't want people to think he's asexual. But, I mean, so studio notes don't always have to be bad or unnecessary. Just because studio doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, I thought it added to the movie. You yeah. don't seem to think I, I don't see don't, your opinion. I, I but I don't completely believe, disagree. I don't believe that's an objective opinion. Or rather, I don't believe that's an objective statement. This was unnecessary. I think that's personal. I think they added it to try and give the female doctor character something to do because they didn't do what they did with her in the book. Okay, but without knowing that, like I said, I don't know any of this. I don't know anything about the book, Books of a Burning. Um, so Even I if can you only didn't, the fact that they wait until like the last act to reveal that, no, wait, yeah, these two used to get together on a semi-regular basis. But that was the whole, but that was embedded in the reveal that she wasn't the villain. Um, again, I just, I don't think it was necessary. You can have the same, if you want to have, you know, subtleties about him choosing his career before love or whatnot. There's still a few conversations that he has with Sienna that specifically reference that material that are fine and can be left on their own. They don't in this instance need to lead into, Oh, my long lost one true love who I can never be with because we both have jobs. This just in. This is from Inverse.com. Talking sex robots with warm genitals will be on sale next year. It'll cost about $15,000. Well, if they weren't cost prohibitive, I'm sure a bunch of baseball fans could finally get laid. Yeah, let's move on from this because you and I are not seeing eye to eye. And and we we literally need someone to sort of just come in and and referee this at this point. Um, But I'm right. Anyway, uh... You're not right. <laughs> I won't say you're completely so, wrong, but you're not right. Uh, of course you won't. But yeah, I thought that the dragged out ending um, and, and the sort of gratuitous underwater fight scene uh, for it <laughs> to... So and then, it really was. It was like poorly shot. It was poorly choreographed. It was poorly lit. Like, I don't feel like this is an incompetent film in terms of craft. But that last scene, I'm not entirely sure the director could completely, like, get behind or support. In other words, like, I, I because think Because Ron was, Howard, for all of his flaws, tends to know what works. And this scene didn't, that whole sequence just didn't work. Yeah, I feel like they shot it and they were like, well, we can't do anything. It's like, we have no other ending. We have to release it as it is. Just try to fix it and post as best you can. But it's a shitty, dark, confusing, long scene that ultimately leads with what you thought was going to happen anyway. So it's like, eh. Um, but that was really like the only part of the movie I didn't particularly like. I think the rest of it was fine. I thought, you know, the guy saying, I thought the guy's ulterior motive, the, uh, the guy from the World Health Organization, you know, his ulterior motive of trying to trick Langdon and um, and ultimately take the, the virus for himself so he could sell it as a biological weapon. Short-sighted, but, you know, I thought that was fun. Um, so that's it. I mean, I don't want to spend too much longer on, on the plots of the, the plot of the movie or, or the, those kinds of details. We have two other segments to get to, and I know you want to talk about the art of adaptation. So I'm going to let you uh, jump in here. 
All right. Um, I agree with you about Tom Hanks. He's fine. Uh, I mean, nothing exceptional, but he's certainly adequate in this particular role. Uh, I didn't like a lot of the action in this movie, uh, primarily because we're dealing with a lot of both shaky cam and very quick cuts, and I don't like those. I I don't like that technique. I think it's a fundamental. Generally, it's a fundamentally flawed methodology for putting a movie together. Not exclusively, and there are certainly instances where it can be used well, but generally speaking, I I just don't find it to be the most meritorious of methodologies. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of the treasure hunting elements in this movie because they're few and far between. And much like Mark, I enjoy puzzles. I enjoy watching people figure things out. I like trying to figure things out beforehand. Uh, I like movies that are at least interesting or engaging intellectually. And that's one of supposed to be one of the draws for this franchise in general is, you know, come and not just, not just be engrossed by action sequences, but have a bit of your brain tickled. And this movie absolutely and utterly foregoes that to its eternal detriment. I mean, and this is why I wanted to talk about the adaptation, because there's a couple of things that happen differently in the book than in the movie. And uh, like Mark and I talked about a little bit before, I don't care if you change things. I really don't. I understand the differences in the mediums. You have to have a reason for changing things, and you have to make the right changes at the right times and do them in the right way. And they really dropped the ball on this one in a couple of different spots. One is the character of Ben Zobrist, the guy who designs the plague. Uh, he's just kind of a nothing character. I mean, he is, uh, you know, stock villain number 32, who created the MacGuffin. That's kind of his He's role. not really the villain, now. I know, and that's... And, what kills me is that in the novel, he actually, I mean, through flashbacks, and you can debate the veracity of flashbacks all we want, Mark and I have at times, he's established that you know, as a character, as someone who just, you know, not just a guy in front of an audience on YouTube talking about overpopulation. He tries to do things about the problem. He, you know, has a bit of a, his, he has a fixation on Dante, not Sienna. He does and that gets completely flip-flopped in this for no apparent reason. They monkeyed with Sienna's character a little bit, which, again, there are degrees to which you can do this, and there are degrees to which you can't. Uh, they, in the book, she, they talk a lot about her isolation and her being a genius. Her IQ is something like 208. And her kind of disaffection from society because she struggles to relate to people, the impetus to do, to create things that comes with, frequently comes with very high intellects like that. In this, she's just kind of following him around. And then I want to blow up the world because the guy I was in love with did. It's, it's really well, kind of half-assed. Well, I disagree with that. I think you're oversimplifying it. I she one. She was enamored with the guy, but she took on the belief her. She did in fact take on the belief herself that 
the world was overpopulated and it needed to go. She wasn't just blindly following his dictates. Okay, fair enough. Two, I don't like the fact that they went uh, in everything but actually saying it, they went the terrorist route for the finale. Hey, wait, we've got guys from the Middle East with bombs. I mean, come on. Like, we, we can't just have them chasing this poor white girl. Give them the Arabs. <laughs> well, it wasn't Turkey. I know that, but it, 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 look, it, it's in Turkey in the book, too. But she, does she really need to have these two guys follow her around with explosives? Do we need this? Her on her own, you know, with a knife or a pistol at range trying to puncture the bag isn't adequate. I mean, you know, she she needed help. She needed assistance. She needed help getting to Turkey. She did not need help once there. She needed to get, she needed to have people fight off Langdon. Yeah, sure. A college professor and his, you know, apparently one of his students. Good choice. Hey, the World Health Organization is some bad motherfuckers. At least in this, they are. <laughs> Anyone who knows about the, this is one of those things like uh, the first X Files movie presented FEMA as an alternative government that could take over the country. Well, sure, it sounds oh, good God. until you actually look into what these organizations do and how they operate. Or a Tupperware party. What the fuck are they talking about? Oh, there are just provisions whereby FEMA supersedes local government, right? <laughs> sure. No, this is true. That that's their purpose. They are the federal emergency oh. management agency. There are laws in place that allow them to supersede governments in favor of their own protocols because they're the experts. They know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. 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 And the theory is, if there's a big enough outbreak in the United States, it wouldn't be out. It wouldn't be out of the question for them to simply supersede the entire federal government. Sounds scary on uh-huh. paper, and then you realize that. And now, again, this is also the first X Files movie, so this is you know, fifteen years before Katrina, something like that. So again, it sounds scary until you look into what they actually do and how they actually do it and the degree to which they are incompetent. The World <laughs> Health Organization sounds great on paper. Here's this you know, multinational organization uh, that deals with diseases and outbreaks, and here they've got you – know, they're militarized, and you know, theoretically so is the UN. All right? Let's be realistic here, though. Trust me, the WHO is not this intimidating. <laughs> But uh, again, so I didn't like the, I didn't like that. Uh, here's the primary difference. There's a couple of them. One, Langdon's romantic interest in the Doctor is not existent in the book. Two, and this is where I really feel they could have done something a little bit different with this movie. Uh, Zobrist has created again a plague because he wants to stop global overpopulation. It's a real problem. It is right now, in fact. And he's tried everything that he can think of. And nobody's listening. Nobody wants to do anything. He has finally just snapped and says, I've had enough. He's a little bit unstable anyway. Creates a plague. 
Sienna is still his girlfriend, significant other, whatever. The, there's a substantial difference in the book. She does still leave Langdon in Turkey to try and find the virus on her own, but she's not trying to release it. He tells her about the plague, and she is horrified. She abandons Langdon and evades the World Health Organization because, in her own words, she doesn't trust these bodies with this virus. She just wants to find it and eradicate it, and everyone can move on and be better off. Now, this works in the book not just because he created a virulent pathogen. That's actually not that difficult, especially if you really know what you're doing. In the book, he creates what's known as a vector virus, which is not something we can actually manufacture right now. It cannot be artificially created. We don't have the technology. Zobrist was able to do it because of his unparalleled genius within this field. His plague, all, they arrive in Turkey in the book and find that the bag has already been breached. The virus has been released and has been for a week. Here's the thing. It doesn't kill people. You see, just wiping out half the world's population wouldn't solve the problem. That half that survives is going to replicate at the same rate. You've just postponed the same problem. Zobrist comes up with a much better solution. His virus, which does spread throughout the world and has by the time they reached, by the time they get there, it's like, oh, this has been released for six months, for six, you know, about a week. It's actually already everywhere. It activates randomly in one third of the population to render them infertile. And because of yeah. the way it works, it replicates and you will pass it on to your children in perpetuity. His solution is just, you know, one third of all humanity on the earth from now going forward will no longer reproduce. Makes sense. I mean, it's really a much better solution. It's a much more elegant solution. It actually gets out and they decide that, well, we can't just reverse engineer this. We don't understand the technology. We don't understand the methodology. We're just going to have to live with this going forward. Uh, and Sienna, is, she plays a much bigger role in the sense that, again, she tried to stop it, but winds up going with the WHO to kind of explain elements of the science to people, elements of the philosophy. And yeah, she's also kind of the reminder that, you know, everybody, we all knew this was a problem and nobody did anything. We brought this on ourselves. Those of us who... I mean, think about this for just a minute. If you try to bring up, you know, how do we solve this problem? You're immediately shouted down. You're decried as a lunatic, even if you're making reasonable assumptions or reason, you know, if you're making a reasonable suggestion, you're still kind of just shouted down. You're mocked. And in this case, they kind of make a point that Zobrist tried plenty of other avenues and just nobody would listen. Not even in the sense of my way or the highway. No one would engage in a meaningful dialogue. They just said, you're crazy, get out. Well, okay, let me jump in here for a second. Now, not having read the book, but boy, have I been a part of plenty of uh, casual and professional conversations about, you know, what do we do about... Um, in this particular case, 
sort of the sister subject of this sort of thing, you know, people who should not be having children, you know, that we could do away with most of the child abuse on, on the earth if we would just, you know, the, the popular thing is you have a license to drive a car, but you don't have a license to have children um, and aren't children more valuable than cars. Um, I guess, which is debatable, but um, in any case, you know, it, it's always the same thing that if people who, if only people who should have children had them, we generally speaking, wouldn't have much in the way of child abuse here. You certainly wouldn't have had, you wouldn't have sort of the Lord of the fly situation that you currently have with a lot of the population of kids uh, in America. And it always comes kind of back to the same thing. It's about human rights. It's about you, you know, don't have the right to tell people you folks can't have children, but you folks can. You're, you're making uh, judgments about people. And at least in this country, it's unconstitutional. Now in China, they just created a rule and said, you can only have one kid. That's it. <laughs> one child policy. That's the country you live in, folks. You don't like it? Fucking move. Good, good luck with that. Except um, they won't let you move. Except they won't let because you. Because it's China. Uh, but, like I said, here, but like I said, here in America, it would be unconstitutional to, you know, come up with something like a parenting license or, um, you know, something along those lines. And so, you know, it goes back to, now you're going to take it to, to a bigger issue, the idea of sterilizing people. Again, we've actually done that in this country. There was a whole movement, and in some cases it did happen, where we sterilized certain women who were deemed not appropriate for child rearing. Uh, these were generally developmentally disabled women, people who we would, um, and I'm not using this in the derogatory sense, but in the literal medical sense, people that were mentally retarded, um, you know, or at least borderline, so that they don't have the Down syndrome or anything like that. Uh, but you know, you could clearly see their IQ was under, was under, or just at, or just over what we have dictated is the line between functional and functionally retarded. And there was a woman who I believe did get pregnant and she was sterilized. And I believe she was basically like tricked into doing so by the physician at that time. And there was a huge movement in this country to continue to sterilize undesirable women or under, potentially undesirable parents. Um, and uh, it, it, this went to the Supreme Court. This is all, by the way, laid out in a book called War Against the Weak, in case anyone wants to read it. You're, you're wondering where I'm getting any of this from. Um, I don't know if you've read it, Robert, but it's, it's a great book. Uh, nonfiction, obviously. These things happened. There was a whole constitutional case about it, and I think up until maybe like the 70s, from what I remember, and again, memory for details, tad fuzzy, but um, I believe it was like the last place in America that still could, where you could still legally sterilize someone for the betterment of humanity was finally stricken down in, I believe, the 70s. So, this Sounds is a very right. real thing. And, about right. and, and this is a very real thing, and it's been going on for decades. And I think, in that sense, that was another element of the plot that was, was for me, legitimate and enjoyable. 
this is a real thing we struggle with and have been struggling with for decades. And unfortunately, in the movie, they do nothing with it other than use it as motivation for crazy billionaire genius number 32. I'll give you that. It's not the most... They it's one of my big gripes about the adaptation is that if you look at Angels and Demons or The Da Vinci Code, in addition to what they do uh, you know, from various you know, action set pieces, they actually take time to kind of explore some of the intellectual or ethical questions being raised by the source material. Well, what if, right. what if Jesus was married? Uh, to me, this is not a shock, but if you're Catholic or some loose derivation thereof, it's you know next to sacrilege. Well, well, what is the line between science and religion? Where do we draw it? How do we come together? Things about that from you know angels and demons, which and that's a prominent feature of that story. These are still addressed in some kind of meaningful way by their adaptations by the films. In this instance. Oh, no, there's too many people on the planet, and it's going to get worse, and I'm going to kill half of them. Well, because you're evil, your points about there being too many people on the planet are clearly wrong. Right. I was going to say, they kind of turned sort of a philosopher into a mustache-twirly villain, which was a bit of a waste, especially given the subject material. Yeah, and I I actually like that Sienna Brooks wound up being a good guy in this case. The, uh, this was someone who was kind of on that bandwagon and then, no, you know, a third of the human population going forward in perpetuity will not be able to breed and this will allow for homeostasis to be reestablished. Hang on. Horrified in, in defense her to of, such an extent that she had to stop. Hang on one second. In defense of sort of mi- minimizing the plot down to mustache twirly villains and nonsense, this is America, and this is a casual don't movie think going. About stuff. Let's. Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. I imagine that the meeting for this adaptation went something like this. Well, there's a lot of stuff about Dante. Minimize it. Okay. Well, we've got Tom Hanks. He's coming back as Robert Langdon. He needs a love interest. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> the virus actually gets released, and the nope, happy ending. Uh, and the girl that he was with turns on him, but doesn't really. And nope, she's evil. Uh, make her a sex crazed maniac who just wants to destroy the, you know, help destroy the world because that's what her lover wanted. And that's how people, and people will, they'll, they'll line up. You see, we'll make a killing. See, just follow up. Just do what I say. Not for nothing, but you get the films you deserve. And it's not like we as an American public have shown a great interest in massive numbers in intelligently written media. Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll I guess throw we get in January. In. We get Underworld 17 and the return of Xander Cage. And why? Just why? And another Resident Evil. Oh, I had blocked that from my mind. Have you even seen any of those beyond like the first one? I mean, not in a while. Because I have. I've seen all of them. I know I gave up on it after a while. I'll, I'll give you that much. I wish I had. It's, they're, they're <laughs> terrible. They're just awful. Yep. And we're going to do them. We're going to watch every last one of them between Long Road to Ruin and Damn You Hollywood. I hope you saw as much as I did. Well, 
look, finish making your point, but I, but I want to say this, and then I will shut up until we're ready to move on to the next section of this review. And that, and that is simply this. Those notes that you're talking about come from the fact that people study, you know, that these executives study the American audience. They look at ticket sales. They look and see what sells and what doesn't. And, you know, you get the president that you deserve. You get the government that you deserve. You get the movies that you deserve. And occasionally you get one, you know, like a Deadpool or something that sort of breaks the mold and does something interesting. But it doesn't happen all that often. Um, and for the most part, you, you get what you've been paying for all this time. And a lot of this movie and the changes you're talking about between the movie and the book occur because, in fact, that is what people want. And there's no getting around that. So well, that's as good a segue as we're going to get into the fact that people didn't want this and aren't paying uh, well, to see it. <laughs> up until recently, I suppose. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I have anything else. I mean, look, they took all the interesting parts of the story and neutered them in favor of turning this into as generic as toothless, as forgettable an experience as humanly possible. And the majority of people are just now ignoring it, as they should. Well, before we get into the money, can we talk about that for a second? Can, you know, You'd like? I think the, que- I think the question remains, because you don't know that they've, that they've neutered this thing until you've seen it, but you had to have had an interest in seeing it in the first place. You don't know that it's not good unless you go out and see it. Look, and, and, and as we've seen with Suicide Squad, critic schmedics, I mean, I pay attention to it because I'm interested in that sort of thing, but for the most part, Americans don't give a shit what the critics think, or no one would have seen Suicide Squad, but it was, it made what, it was one of the most money-makingest movies of this year. Oh, if only and they had was, listened to the critics. Life would be so much better. It was not the point, come on. And it, and it was savaged by the critics. So my point being that people didn't go see this movie because they didn't want to well before the critics rated and said, this is a, this is a piece of shit. So that, that, that brings us to the question of why, why didn't Americans, why weren't Americans interested in a movie about, about uh, a guy releasing a virus to kill half the population and clues derived out of Dante's Inferno, Robert. Why do you think? Two reasons. One, Angels and Demons was pretty divisive, and the fan base for Dan Brown's work is not nearly as passionate and expansive as it is for other materials that are adapted to the big screen. Like all you dumbasses who saw Fifty Shades of Grey, shame on yourselves. <laughs> Give them hell. I'd tell, you, I'd tell you to engage in self-flagellation, but you'd probably like it a little bit too much. Oh. I'm not judging if you're a masochist, you know, rock on, safe, sane, and consensual. Don't go see that movie. <laughs> my I point there is... People, I wonder how many people listen to us you know, talk about this stuff and go like, hey, man, fuck you two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting uh, to, know, to, under, to know that one. Um, but so we're dealing with material that doesn't have the biggest fan base and certainly not a fanatical enough one to compensate for deficiencies of film quality. Look, Suicide Squad was a mess, but you say that to any, to any number of the either DC fanboys or the Harley Quinn fanatics or so on and so forth, and you're summarily shouted down. 
Whether you're right or not is irrelevant. They don't care. Well, also, aren't you talking, isn't it just a question of mathematics? If you take the total amount of people who are fans of the Dan Brown novel series and the total amount of fans who are, let's say, just fans of Harley Quinn, isn't it like three to one? <laughs> oh, to you're one being generous. One. It's probably higher. Uh, but that's – so, yeah, you're dealing with a smaller fan base. You're dealing with poor – I mean, this thing was marketed very poorly. It was marketed? Yes, poorly. Very poorly, okay. in fact. I wasn't aware that it was even marketed. Yes, very poorly. Okay. All right. Uh, it, uh, and it came out in a weird week. I mean – I think a lot of people just – so not only was it – so there was low awareness of it to begin with. And then you release it in a week where there's nothing. I mean, people went to see Medea's Halloween a second time. That's how starved they were for something good in the movies. You're calling Medea boom? I'm calling Medea Tyler Perry a hack. No, it sounds like you were saying that the Medea movie was good. You used the word good. I'm a little confused. I said they were so starved for something good, they settled for Medea's Halloween. Okay, okay. Now I understand what you're saying. And Tyler Perry's a hack. Of course he is. But he's our hack. Yeah, the Germans don't claim Uwe Boll. We shouldn't claim Tyler Perry. But we do. All right, I don't. enough of this. I, <laughs> I have made a decision, and my decision is... Here comes the money! Here we go! Money talk! Here comes the money! Money, money, money! Matter. All right, here comes the money. Uh, Inferno, at a $75 million budget... It's almost there. It's almost at profitability, theoretically speaking. Uh, it's currently made $148 million. Um, it made now, it, now, this is, uh, I, I, when I was promoting this on Facebook, I said it was hashtag Warcraft. And what I mean by that is it did dog shit numbers in the U.S. If you're just looking at the weekend box office for the domestic uh, for um, just the domestic uh, take, Boo a Medea Halloween made 17 million. Inferno was actually number two. <laughs> it made 14 million eight hundred and sixty thousand uh, dollars. Jack Reacher, which I believe came out um, a couple of weeks ago, dropped from two to three, made almost 10 million dollars this past weekend. Yeah, but Jack Reacher's bombing. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, the Accountant debuted at number four for Ben Affleck. Ah, that's fine. From- the Accountant is actually a smaller budgeted film, from what I understand, and is more mm. des- and is as much designed to be prestige as it is financial. So, for what it's worth. Um, Ouija, Origin of Evil, dropped three to five. Girl on the Train, five to six. Miss Peregrine's Home for X-Men, six to seven. Keeping up Which, with the Joneses. Can we talk briefly about that? Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children has done very, very well financially. I, I haven't looked because I just don't care. 
Um, let's see, 10, $110 million budget, $243 million worldwide. Yeah, not bad. It's profitable. Look, it hit, it hit $200 million. I mean, that's, a, that's, not an, uh, that's not something to sneeze at. <laughs> you know what? It might have made enough money to go shit. I was going to say, this might have actually done about what Ghostbusters did so far. Yeah, but Ghostbusters was terrible. So you keep saying. Uh, in any case... Back to Inferno. So, yeah, Inferno didn't even win its weekend. Um, it debuted at number two behind fucking Boo of Medea Halloween, which was in its second week uh, when this came out. And I'm sure it will continue to drop precipitously. Um, like I said, it's almost that profitability with a $148 million take. Uh, now, its foreign take was $132 million. So, it's doing pretty good uh, across the seas. It's, it's opening up in France, I believe, this weekend coming up. Um, now, the studio, uh, which is... Oh, God, which studio was this? Focus Features. Uh, Sony. Sony, Sony yeah. Sony. Still doing better than Paramount. Um, they've actually made profitable, profitable movies this year. Uh yeah, Paramount, man. Bunch of that. That's like Mad Max times over there in the boardroom, I imagine. <laughs> Thanks, Mo. Um, so yeah, uh, they wanted to release Usually it before Doctor. <laughs> they wanted to release it before Doctor Strange because they knew that Doctor Strange currently certified fresh and already. Uh, this is already like profitable. Uh, the thing made market. eighty million overseas already, and it's tracking to do eighty million here. It, it, Doctor Strange is going to be a monster. Yeah, I mean, Doc, we knew it was going to be profitable, but man, this thing is trending well. Well, it's, it's look. I think I read an article that the Doctor Strange is looking to me looking to do a better first weekend than Guardians of the Galaxy, which ultimately made like three hundred some odd million dollars. Ant Man, which ended up doing pretty well. Uh, what else? Better than Thor, better than the first Cap. Uh, they're, they're talking about this being potentially the most successful solo Marvel movie. In years. Because Iron Man, because you, you know, it's... No, like it's on, still got a way Iron to Man. That, that's Iron the, Man. That's the comparison, is with the first Iron Man movie. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay, I got it from Deadline. Um, I'm going to pull up the article real quick. So Doctor Strange levitates to <laughs> levitates. Um, God damn it, skip ad, you motherfuckers! Uh, Doctor Strange levitates to eighty-seven point seven million in overseas vow, squashes comps, sets IMAX records, international box office update, and um, uh, blah blah blah. Okay, the increases were seen across some of the major plays, including the UK, France, Germany, Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Russia, and what was a mystical debut for the 14th MCU picture, which beat notable com- uh, comparisons in Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Thor of the Dark World. So there you go. Yeah, it's Doctor Strange is going to be huge. I might even see this one in 3D, because I've been hearing that, it, that it's worth it. So. Yeah, I'm probably going to go see it in IMAX. Um, so I can get that because I mean the the way this thing's been shot, I, I can't imagine. Um, oh, and and the Winter Soldier, that was the fourth one that it's at the head of. Um, so 
my I'm probably gonna go see it in IMAX just because you know it's got that like psychedelic shot you know look to it, um, that sort of Inception camera deep camera work. I think uh, this one's definitely gonna be IMAX worthy. In any case, uh, yeah, Doctor Strange is pretty much gonna eat up the box office until Moana comes out. And well, what Doctor Strange doesn't take is gonna get taken up by Hacksaw Ridge. Um. So yeah, it doc, it's going to be Doctor Strange, Moana, and Rogue One. So ladies and gentlemen, the year belongs to Disney. Just get over it. <laughs> it is what it they is. might have all top, like the top five movies of the they entire year. Do. Okay, but, I don't see uh, anything coming out that's going to challenge them, and they might be the only studio all year that makes a billion dollars, and they might do it you know, multiple times. Rogue One probably will, because Star Wars fanatics. Moana could, um, uh, yeah, being an animated Disney movie, and Doctor Strange might. I'm on the wrong thing here. All right, so if you're looking at worldwide growth, they own the, the top, top four, four positions. Yeah, The Jungle Book, Finding Dory, Zootopia, and, so, and uh, Civil War. And three of those, Dory, Zootopia, and Civil War, have all made over a billion. The Jungle Book's close at $966 million. And in a distant third from that, the fifth space overall at $873 million, the not actually prof- profitable Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And yeah, Dawn of Justice is going to get dropped out of the top five by at least one of those uh, easily. Oh, yeah. Doctor Strange will be in the top five. And then it's going to be a matter of competition among the, you know, for the top four or fifth spot. <laughs> Does Star Wars actually take the top spot? Well, considering the reshoots they ordered and some of the, you know, rumblings that came out about, no, we must give notes. Seriously, that, that crusty uh, bit where Mr. Teeny throws a bomb at the uh, studio <laughs> executives who are interfering with the crusty show they blow up, they reform just like the T-1000 from Terminator 2, and their comeback line is, we have notes. Anyway. That's a Sideshow Bob episode, actually, where he comes back and hypnotizes Bart to blow up Krusty. Third, third try. Oh, God, the a bomb. And... I was just thinking that. Yeah! <laughs> in fifth spot will be uh, fought over between Doctor Strange, Moana, and uh, Rogue One in the Jungle Book, currently. So, I mean, I don't, I mean... Maybe one of those will end up doing better than a billion, uh, and they'll take the, the third spot, which is Finding Dory. But then you're gonna have four movies and four Disney movies, all making a billion dollars, and one that came darn close. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Yeah, look, Disney cleaned up this year. Just there's no two ways around it. We're gonna be talking about that a lot on our year-end special. Not for nothing, but you know, if, if you would have said a couple of years ago that you know disney was going to be the studio to be that they're going to own property they're going to own some properties and they're going to take over the film industry it would have been laughable universal was a monster at one point an unbeatable monster now warner brothers has been a shit sandwich for a while now you know they occasionally put out something halfway decent but you know they're they're overall when no one departed they went down the crapper yeah. Um, you know, so they've, so Universal was, was the, and then Fox really had a lot of hits. It's not like, you know, I mean, Fox for the, for the most part 
has a pretty winning record with their X-Men series. I mean, they've got a couple of duds, X-Men 3, uh, which one day I will do a podcast. And Apocalypse. With no um, yeah, Apocalypse was a dud. Um, but but uh, Logan my- comes out next year. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty psyched for Logan. Yeah, well, hopefully you won't get caught up in, the, you know, this is this is not enough like the real old man Logan for me, like some people. Hey, look, I, I told, I, as has been discussed, I'm okay with you monkeying with source material. I mean, I wanted to see the Hulk die on screen because I always do, but I'm prepared to make concessions. Considering he's not a Fox property, tough shit. Um, uh, I'm aware. I'm quite aware. And they're going to make changes that they have to make, and I'm okay with that. Make changes. There should be changes, quite frankly, going from comic book to movie. It's just how you make them. And, you know, again, the decision-making process, the feel of the overall movie, so on and so forth. And I'm generally uh, hopeful. I am hopeful with uh, this based on what I've seen so far. So since we are talking about, um, since we are talking about Sony, since this is a Sony movie, Inferno, it'd be fun to kind of just look at right now where Sony stands in terms of domestic growth as of today. Their number one grossing movie right now is Ghostbusters at $128 million. <laughs> However, one of their most profitable movies this year was Angry Birds, which overall um, had a budget of $73 million and total worldwide was $349 million. But even they grossed, I mean, even their domestic was $107 million. So, you know, Angry like Bird it or not, Movie in terms of movie making, kept the budget low, appealed to the widest possible audience, including children, and don't screw up the movie. Simple. Um, Sausage Party was pretty profitable. Another animated flick, this one for adults, had a $19 million budget and worldwide did $136 million. Uh, domestically, it did 97 and is in third place. The Magnificent Seven had a $90 million budget, um, not profitable. This one uh, just this wasn't one a very down. good movie. We talked about it. We did. Uh, in the fourth, two, four, fifth place, The Shallows, which I do believe was profitable, had a $17 million budget and did a whopping $119 million overall. Yeah, that's unfortunately going to lead to more Blake Lively. In sixth place is Risen, which is the, the Christ movie, I believe. Which did a twenty million dollar budget. That. Uh, yeah, twenty million dollar budget, barely profitable. Uh, worldwide, forty six million. It did not do well. Barely profitable, but still not not very well. Not really worth making. The fifth wave, I believe, went down in flames. And oh, yeah. million, it is minimally profitable. It's thirty eight million dollar budget. Well, when you consider what they wanted out of it, believe me, this is a tire fire. Yeah, no, no. I mean, if they they were going to France, they wanted Hunger Games, and they got uh, Vampire Academy. If they were looking for a young adult franchise out of this, this thing blew up on the launch pad. It did 109 million worldwide, which means you know they could they could uh, you know they could do payroll, and that's about it. (laughs) There's there's nothing coming out of this movie. The fifth wave is done. Um, Inferno is behind the fifth wave. Um, domestic is at 60, 16 million, as we talked about before. And then rounding out the domestic chart here, 
is The Brothers Grimsby, The Mermaid, which is actually in the top 10 worldwide, uh, but domestically only made about $3 million because we The Mermaid's a Chinese movie designed and marketed to be appealing to the Chinese audience where it killed. And then the last two is El Jeremiah's and My Best Friend's Wedding. Which is also a foreign film. Yeah, this uh, was not a good year for Sony. They they so went that, all in on Melissa McCarthy and Paul Feig, and that was that's <laughs> never a good idea. Still better than Paramount. I don't care. Paramount didn't inflict Ghostbusters on the world. Just a, just just for comparison's sake, uh, Paramount's top no, number one movie this year is Star Trek Beyond then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, then 10 Clover Lane, then 13 Hours of Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, then Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, then Zoolander, then Florence, Foster Jenkins, then Ben-Hur. Then Wait Lucy a minute, Tango I Park. take it back. I absolutely take it back. Paramount's responsible for the Zoolander sequel. I want them all dead. And, and Ben-Hur. Uh, I don't have a emotional reaction to the Ben-Hur movie. It's stupid. It was a stupid idea. It was stupidly handled. I do. A hundred million dollar budget, and they made, they didn't even make their budget, okay? They made twenty million dollars in Mark, you know, know that I can't be rational when it comes to Ben Stiller. I just can't. The numbers are all that matters. Get your personal opinion out of this. I I'm surprised Jack Reacher is doing so badly. <laughs> Why? I mean, this is another why? instance of a movie being successful in the first place that wasn't necessarily meant to be that big, and as soon as it hit, they paid no attention to why it was successful or what people liked about it, and just more Tom Cruise driving a car, and more explosions, <laughs> and people will pay to see it, because they paid to see the first one, and that's not how this works. Yeah. $60 million budget on this motherfucker. That creature was the first one wasn't even that good. It was a really good cable TV movie. All right. So, yeah, Inferno is a shit sandwich. Um, not not good. Not a, not a good look on Sony. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what's left for Sony to even finish out the year. Uh, that's <laughs> an interesting question. Let me see. Yeah, I want to look at this real quick. All right, so next week, so this Friday, we've got Doctor Strange, which is Disney, Hacksaw Ridge, which is Lionsgate, which even if it does bad, it'll still be an Oscar movie. Um, my wife allegedly is still taking my kids to go see Trolls, and that's put out by Fox, so I'm sure that'll make money. Um, uh, on the 11th, uh, yeah, Friday the 11th of November, we've got Almost Christmas, which is Universal, Arrival, which is Paramount, and you shut in, which is a Europa Corp, so nothing. Um, we've got on the 18th, Bleed for This, which is open road films, The Edge of 17, STX Entertainment, and Fantastic Beasties and Where to Find Them. That's have gonna a be a car named Bob on the 18th of November. <laughs> Yo, boy. Um, I'm just looking at wide releases, I'm not looking at the other stuff. But uh, yeah, on Friday the 18th, people will take a brief moment to stop watching Doctor Strange to go watch Harry Potter movies that don't have Harry Potter in them. So that's and the next week, there's the rock. There's the rock. Yes. And then on the 23rd, you've got 
Paramount Allied. You've got uh, Bad Santa 2, which is brought to you by something called Broad Dream Pictures. You've got Disney. You've got another Disney princess movie, this time set in Polynesia with The Rock. And then you've got something called Rules Don't Apply, put out by Fox. Um, in December. So still nothing from Sony of note. They have something called Jackie. Jackie. No, sorry, that's Fox. Um, Like I said, not looking at non-wide distribution here. No one's going to see anything that's not wide distribution. Sorry. Um, You've got Incarnate, which is high top releasing. Kidnap, which is relativity, so nothing there. You've got Paramount on the 9th, which is Office Christmas Party. Um, and nothing that nothing else that week. You've got. I don't think they the have another major release all year. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing anything. You've got on the 16th Rogue One, and that's the only thing that matters. Send the space between us, which is the kid that gets left on Mars uh, by STX Entertainment, and Collateral Beauty by Warner Brothers. But it doesn't matter because anyone's all anyone's going to see that weekend is Rogue One. You've Most got likely, even though it's it, even if it's terrible, it's, it's still terrible. It's still clean up. You've got something called Why Him um, by Fox. That's a that is a comedy starring Brian Cranston and James Franco that makes me weep for the waste of Cranston's talent. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that piece of shit looking thing. All right, and then finally, oh, okay, here we go. All right, so Sony is closing out the year on December twenty first with this picture, Passengers which is going up against Fox's Assassin's Creed with, what's his face, Magneto, and Universal animated pick, Sing. And if you don't, I mean, um, we're going to do Assassin's Creed so we can have Sean on the show, and, you know, it's a video game title and everything. But in all honesty, Sing wins that weekend. Sing is going to clean the fuck up. It's It's a movie about singing animals. We're done here. Okay. Pretty much. Passengers has actually been getting a pretty decent uh, promotional push, at least around here. Oh, this is the Jennifer. Yeah, I've seen this a couple. This is the. No one's going to see this. This is Jennifer Uh, Lawrence. Hang on. People are going to see it. It's still not going to save their year. It won't. I'm sorry. It's competition that weekend. And oh, by the way, it's two days before frickin' Christmas. Um, sorry, four days before Christmas, is Assassin's Creed and Sing. Who's going to see Passengers? People <laughs> who don't want to see either of those. This is actually a decent bit of counter-programming. Unfortunately, the reported budget is in the 120 to $150 million range. The box office motor doesn't have the numbers yet. But, um, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Look, I will bet you hard currency that this thing is dog shit that weekend, and all anyone goes to see is Assassin's Creed, Sting, Fantastic Beast, Moana, Rogue One, and Doctor Strange. No one's going to see uh, that. I, you know, probably. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not saying this is going to be a big hit for them, but this is something that people will go see. Not in they huge numbers, have, but... They should, they should not have tried to release this Christmas week. They should have released this in early January. I mean, the first week in oh, January. Yeah. I, oh, please. Now I'm angry. Like, wait a minute. You could have released this in January, and I could have made a legitimate claim about this movie instead of any of the other crappy movies I'm going to have to review. 
I, just, I'm just, actually just, pissed about this now. <laughs> okay, just as an exercise, here's what they could have programmed a Chris Pratt, who's hot tamales right now, and Jennifer Lawrence, the it girl of Hollywood. Okay, they could have released this on January 6th, and it would have competed against Under Fucking World, who I'm the only one going to see it. <laughs> and no, I'm seeing it too. <laughs> Underworld Blood Wars and Amityville The Awakening. They yeah. could have released it. Yeah. They could have released it. In Why January. not wait until January? God. <laughs> now I'm mad. <laughs> they could have released this January 13th, and it would have been again the Bye Bye Man, Monster Trucks, which no one will go see. Maybe some families will drag their children, but it's not going to be. A, I mean, this is not an animated Nobody's feature. Seen. It's a lot. Nobody's of seeing Monster Trucks. That's that's a poorly no, made, this, poorly promoted movie. Do even my kids don't want to go see this, and they see hot garbage and sleepless by Open Road Films. Okay, now maybe this next one would have been some some bad counter programming. You've got the founder, which is the um, Michael Keaton as Joe uh, Ray Kroc uh, movie. You've got the uh, resurrection of Gavin for that Stone. One. The people who are going to see that one are those who want to go see Michael Keaton act. I don't. Th- I think a big budget kind of sci-fi drama. Isn't get, there's not a whole lot of overlap there. There's not a whole lot of overlap there. You've got Split, which is a horror movie from Universal. And oh, here we go. Triple X, the, re- the return of Xander Cage. We're looking for somebody to do dope stunts. Can't really? Guys, at Sony, Guys, at, at, uh, at you know, Sony, Universal, yeah, or wherever. Yeah. You couldn't have saved me from one of those. Just me personally, like that, that's all I want. Because I guarantee you, if you had released this with the same kind of promotional push that you're giving it now, in January, I could have told Mark to take any of the movies we're reviewing in January and shove them in, re- in exchange for that one. Dude, I would have fought you to death over any one of these. There's only Bull. one way this works. Bull. <laughs> There's you only are not one way this works. Invested at all in the underworld movies. Not at all. Uh, you would have. You absolutely. Bullshit. You so bullshit because I programmed an entire long road to ruin against it. <laughs> okay, then we would have skipped Triple X. No, we wouldn't have. Yes, we would have. <laughs> I would have insisted we review both. Oh, uh, then what was the other one that was just terrible that we're reviewing? Okay, we. Uh, yes. By the way, that is also Sony. Uh, you couldn't have put Resident Evil around December or around Christmas so that I could just ignore it and pretend that Paul W.S. Anderson continues to not exist? You know, I think I figured out why they didn't put this in January and why they decided December was a better idea, which it isn't. Because we're releasing also... Resident Evil to be just slaughtered by the competition. And Underworld. Underworld is also Wait. Sony. Uh so, so wait, they the counter-programmed of... themselves and put me in a position where I have to review crap. No, the best way to have... Sony should have just said, fuck it, we're not going to win this year. Let's just concede, and we'll push passengers to January 13th. That should have been the move. Because then you have Underworld... Then you got a major release almost every week in January. What? Passengers <laughs> on the 13th, skip a week, uh, only apparently there's something called the Red Turtle, which is a Sony classic. 
Yeah, and that that stuff, but who cares? And then finally, you close out the month strong with the last of the Resident Evil movies, the final chapter. See, that's what Sony should have done. Uh, it could have saved me so much pain. Speaking of pain, sir, are you ready? Uh, no, God! No, God, please, no! 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 All right. You heard, uh, you heard the man. 20% on Rotten Tomatoes and only 43% liked it. Tiff, 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 Inferno. Uh, I'm just going to read. Only we could take this, tra- this moment of, you know, this movie's not very good. Let's all not see it. And if only we could harness this and move forward with it, what a better world we'd live in. Oh, what a wonderful world it would be. I remember when I wanted to be done with this by 1030. All right, I'm just going to read, just go straight Let's down. Let's do this very quickly then, because there's not a whole lot to say here as far as the critical analysis goes. <laughs> I'm just going to read straight down. I'm not picking, I'm not picking and choosing. I'm literally just reading these in a row. Okay, ready? Yep. Richard James Havis of the South China Morning Post. Inferno proves to be as crude and unsophisticated as its source material. It's not accurate. I've seen too many Michael Bay movies to ascribe crude or unsophisticated to this movie. I'm going to be stuck watching another Underworld and another Resident Evil. You, sir, (laughs) no. Those are crude, unsophisticated, terrible movies, and I will be yelling about them for the entire month of January. No. Fail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Gene Kaplan, of our, one of our favorites on, on, in this bit, Kaplan versus Kaplan. You know your film is in deep trouble when even Hanks can't save it. That's not necessarily the most accurate sentiment. I mean, <laughs> I like Tom Hanks. He's a very good actor. And he's got a bit of a draw to him. But generally speaking, he's not box office gold all on his own. So this is actually a fresh review. Kurt Honeycutt of HoneycuttHollywood.com. Ron, ha- Ron Howard is good at detailing exactly how people escape a remorseless fate, and Pulp Fiction, such as Inferno, is no exception. Uh, I'm not sure those are categorizations I would give to Ron Howard to begin with. Christy Pushko of Comic Book Resources, the website I frequent for a lot of my uh, movie news, the best I can offer is the damning of faint praise. Inferno is a modestly entertaining diversion. Uh, that's, that's apparently a generally accurate sentiment. Yeah, I think that's about where I landed. Dennis Schwartz of Ozus's World Movie Reviews. The third sequel is just as wearisome as the others, but if I remember clearly, it's even more plotting than the others. No, I thought Angels and Demons was more plotting. Angels and Demons was at least interesting from a dialogue and a message perspective. This thing is anything but plotting. If anything, it's too frantic. There's a great big Uh, rush in this movie to the point where if you think it's plotting, you're clearly not paying attention. Jackie K. Cooper of the Huffington Post. In the right role, he is great, Sully. In the wrong role, he is terrible, Inferno. 
this James Bondish role in Inferno was a wrong fit. He's not James Bond. You He's not James moron. Bond. What the? F- okay, look. <laughs> Ooh, if I Earth. look, the Huffington Post is what would be referred to in the print era days as a rag. Uh, this is not a publication with any sort of ethical or moral positioning on anything. It's terrible. It's been terrible for decades. Calling this, calling Robert Langdon James Bond does nothing but display your fundamental misunderstanding and stupidity surrounding the characters, what makes them work in their presentation. You should return your last paycheck, sh- slam your fingers in a door, and think about what you've done. <laughs> Al Alexander of the Patriot Ledger. Howard, in his third go-round at the helm of the much maligned but financially lucrative franchise, not this time, financially lucrative franchise, still hasn't gotten a handle on making these bungled endeavors anything more than a chore. You see, that's just not accurate. The first two aren't a chore. Even this one is not a chore. It's not good. But I've had I had a much more difficult time actually just like sitting and processing Ghostbusters or Suicide Squad. Like, no, that's a chore to sit through to watch and process. I I I, I mentioned before at I wouldn't have minimum, seen either movie. At a minimum, the plot made sense. A man yeah. hit a, a man virus and he left clues to find it for his chick. The chick didn't know how to decode the clues, so she tricked. A, a guy who's an expert in the field into finding it for her, and then she found it and tried to use it. And he got there and then ta-da, nick of time to stop her. That's it. That's the plot. Yeah, the uh, it's no, your criticism is inaccurate. And look, it, do you want it, if you don't care for the twists and turns that Dan Brown's material takes, that's fine. I accept that. In fact, now that I have enough material to form a pattern off of it's pretty easy to see you know the tropes that he uses on a regular basis and if you find those tiring or ineffective okay fair play if you don't if you think that howard's adaptations have struggled at times okay i don't disagree but calling them you know pedantic or a chore is just fundamentally inaccurate jason bailey of flavorwire a globe-trotting mystery that's a good deal less challenging than they believe yeah, that's accurate. Okay. Uh, Matt Brunson of Creative Loafing. As a character, Langdon has even less dimensions than the more animated sleuths Carmen Sandiego and Dora the Explorer. Gothamry role. Oh, I I have not seen enough of Dora to, to comment on that particular comparison. Depending on the particulars of the material regarding Carmen Sandiego, I can buy that. Bill Newcott of AARP Movies for Grownups, another one that we love to read on the show. Inferno preserves the series museum hopping intrigue while dispensing with the muddled religion as opiate of the masses themes that made the first two installments more tedious than transporting. Transporting. More tedious than transporting. Well, okay, because if it's more tedious than train spotting, I'm going to just immediately denounce this individual as a film presence because no. No, that was my literacy. That's not his fault. That was me. 
what I actually liked about the first two movies is that rather than, you know, opium for the masses as far as religious critique, it's not about religion as a whole so much as it is elements of religion and how it's permeated our society, which is a discussion that needs to be had on various levels. In this case, the same is somewhat true in the sense that, you know, overpopulation is a problem. It's a thing. It's not going away. We breed worse than rabbits. And the fact that they excised it from the mater- from the movie actually diminishes the overall film. Jason Glover but, of hey, Dork. They sure do run fast a lot. Jason Glover of Dark of Dorkshelf. The fires of Inferno don't burn particularly bright. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, even though you liked it and I didn't, I don't think either of us has exactly glowing praise for nope, anything here. About the- after this podcast is over. Uh, I'll remind Chris you Knight tomorrow the- just for kicks. No, thanks. Chris Knight of the National Post. Now, tomorrow, tomorrow night is all about the New Testament album, which is awesome. Uh, to coin an anagram, exploit, nuance, and battleforge, that is unexceptional, unexceptional and forgettable. Well, I'm glad you knew how to Google an anagram maker for yourself. Jackie Coyle of the Associated Press, top critic. And this is a rotten review. It's a lot more like a tweed jacket version of Bond or Born, again with the Bond comparison. Oh, no, you morons. <laughs> Wait, let me finish it. It's a lot more than a, it's a lot more like a tweed jacket version of Bond or Born or most any other thriller out there. But if Langdon is distinguished from the other globe-trotting saviors by his PhD, why aren't his movies smarter? Yuck, yuck, yuck. I'll give you this is a dumb movie, all things considered. That's very accurate. It's one of my complaints about this movie is that it's so stupid, it insults your intelligence. However, how do you arrive at the conclusion that this character is in even the same hemisphere as Bond or Born? They're nothing alike. Nothing. Oh, wait, no, they travel, and they're men. Wow. You found the broadest possible points of commonality there, didn't you? (laughs) Got another James Bond one for you. James Vernier of Boston Herald. Inferno, not exactly scintillating. James Bond movie locations are nice, however. (sighs) I'm sorry, are you now substituting James Bond... For anyone who travels in film? Is that what we've arrived at here? Oh, this person leaves their home state. This movie's not set in America. Must be like James Bond. That's the only international character my poor, poor xenophobic mind has ever been exposed to. That George Clooney character in Up in the Air, he's like James Bond because he travels a lot and fires people. Hey, uh, yeah, Mark Wahlberg. You know, he actually leaves the state of Texas in Transformers. James Bond all the way. What's the matter with you people? He goes to China. James Bond meets Transformers. No! Just Here's no! Here's a retroactive one for you. Indiana Jones. They, they occasionally will show him traveling on a map. James Bond. Ugh. Of course, in the case of Indiana Jones, elements of his similarities to James Bond, like that word, deliberate. But, right. uh, yeah, and the point being that you, you're still correct. Oh, wait, no. Indiana's father is James Bond. He's clearly James Bond. Like, uh, 
I hate you all so much right now. <laughs> Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, top critic. Unless you are a Dante scholar, and perhaps not even then, following Inferno is a wild goose chase without the goose. That's not accurate. They very clearly spell it out. Like, I don't know how dumb this guy is, but I was able to follow it. Jesus. Again, this is the type of person who probably finds Passion of the Christ a bit subtle. (laughs) Ann Lee Ellington of L.A. Biz. Plays like a procedural, thanks to our familiarity with Langdon and his world, even with his global prophetic stakes. I don't think she knows what procedural means. If you want to, no, the word formulaic is more accurate here than procedural. Absolutely. Well, what procedure would she be referring to? Because there's no procedural. Oh, she's not, again, she's trying to come up with a synonym for formula and failing. Uh, okay. All right. This is the last one. And we have read many times from this particular periodical. Um, I'm not entirely sure if we've read from this particular guy or not. But again, I like to read the ones from the people who really do get paid for this so that Robert and I can wonder why, why does someone give you money to do what you just did when my son could come up with something equally as bad? Christopher Lawrence of the Las Vegas review journal Inferno more like infernal. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Hey, look, these two, these two start with the same prefix. I can use that. <laughs> I, really? Like, I, I mean, I, I, I almost can't possibly yell at this person because here's – and for one specific reason. If you are actually paying someone to review movies and that's the best they can do, I have to assume the problem here is whoever chose that blurb. The problem here is the editor, because you cannot possibly think to yourself, I'm going to pay this person a salary to review movies when the hallmark of their criticism is insipid wordplay. There's got to be something we're missing here, because no, just just no. You're supposed to, this is your job. And this is what you do? Oh, what's the matter? What is the what are we doing here as a society? What are we doing? I feel like we ask that question a lot on this show. Or a movie well, review we're podcast. About to elect Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton because people are too stupid to realize the two party system is both flawed and a fallacy. All right, I'm gonna jump into plugs here. Um, but when we're done with this show, don't go too far from your computer because you and I need to test some uh, some equipment out for next week. Um, in any case, uh, tomorrow night on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we are reviewing uh, Testament, Brotherhood of the Snake. Dude, this uh, we have reviewed a lot of mainstream bands this year, and a lot of them are a huge disappointment. Last, the most recent one being Corn uh, for the, the Serenity of Suffering. Not as good as I had hoped it would be. Um, this Testament album just as good as Dark Roots of uh, Earth from a few years ago, which we also reviewed on the show. This is an amazing album. It's one of the few I can say is, is even better, I think, than the previous one, because um, although, like, Hate Breed from earlier this year was a good album, not as good as The Divinity of Purpose. Still good. 
just not as good. And I said that a lot this year. So it's nice to be able to listen to an album and go, oh, no, this thing kicks, kicks ass. The New Testament album quickly became one of my favorite albums of this year. Brotherhood of the Snake is fucking awesome. Um, we'll probably end up playing the title track in our uh, end of the year review when we're going to pick our, some of our favorite tracks from our favorite albums of this year. I can't say enough good things about Testament, but I'm going to try it tomorrow night at 9.30. Uh, Thursday, Long Road to Ruin. We'll be looking at the first two Harry Potter movies. I played them for my kid. My son couldn't have cared less. My daughter thought they were okay. We'll see how she likes the next two movies. Uh, next week, we will be, I will be on source material discussing the graphic novel The Oath. Uh, Dr. Strange. I'll be uh, joined, of course, by the host, Jesse Starcher, Ronnie Adams, and I think, believe, uh, Josh Landros, who's a regular on that show. On Tuesday, uh, Election Day, now, we're going to do a review of Dr. Strange, but neither Rob or I think we're going to have a whole lot to say about it, so we're going to try to cut, we're going to try to stick, stick to about an hour uh, from about 9 to 10, and then we... Um, I'm going to release more, more information about this. This is, a, this is election day. And he's in Utah, I believe, is about two or three hours off from where I am here in Tampa in terms of time zones. I am two hours so ahead of you. Two hours ahead. Behind so, you. Hold, Sorry, behind you. Hold, it's, eight, it's almost nine here. Polls between the two of us will be closing at different times. So as soon as we're My done with doctor. My state doesn't matter. Your state matters a lot. Yes, I am a swing state. Um, so we will see where we are at that time. By the, by the time our podcast is over, we could, we could actually still have a president. Uh, so we could have a new president. It, maybe it'll go into the wee hours. I know the Bush-Kerry election, they didn't call Ohio till like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember that distinctly because I woke my parents up when it happened, and my father almost punched me. But um, <laughs> 2004, what a year. In any case, they uh, didn't call 2000 for a long time because of, you know, recounts and Florida. Um, in any case, I am very interested in not so much who becomes president because I honestly don't care. I'm with South Park. It's between a shit sandwich and a giant douche. Um, I've already voted. I, I voted for I want shit to sandwich. yell at every state that votes for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump because really – so like I said, I don't really care who wins. I don't care if the person I voted for wins, and I've already voted. Um, vote once, vote often. Uh, vote, vote early, vote often. Uh, I've already cast my vote. I did an absentee ballot because I'm not standing on no fucking lines. But uh, I am interested in the election coverage. That's always hilarious. As I said to some of my friends online, one year Fox got so, like, irritated, I guess, with what was happening and some of the calls that were being made when they were being made or not being made as the case may be, they actually just stormed into the count room, which apparently you're not supposed to go into. But they're like, let's have a tour. Um, and and the other thing was, I believe, like, like someone in, in call room got into like a nasty fight on Fox one year. It was pretty funny. Um, in any case, Look, Fox Look, and NBC are equally hilarious for their obvious and prevalent bias. Yeah. It really, it really all depends on how you like your comedy. But uh, so we'll review Doctor Strange. We'll wrap that up real quick. Won't be, won't be an, a long, bloviating show like this one was. 
and then we'll jump right into election coverage. I will post the information as where the show is going to be held because it won't be on Block Talk Radio. It will be on uh, Google Hangout or it will be on YouTube uh, or both. Um, and it'll be right after those we wrap two, up. Those conference. two programs get along, unlike Blog Talk and, you know, everything else. Yes. Uh, November 9th, we will, Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing the new OPEC. It came out a little ways back. We're finally getting around to it. We finally had an open week to do so. So OPEC, Sorceress, Robert Cooper, I'm sure will love it. And on Thursday the 10th, uh, we'll get to the second part of Harry Potter. The following week, um, Harry Potter will be review. Uh, we'll do Long Road to Ruin Harry Potter on the 15th, which is a Tuesday. There'll be no movie review, and Metal Hammer of Doom will be doing our annual Thanksgiving show in which we review a turkey. And the turkey is a bad album, and that bad album is Anthrax, Stomp 442. Holy shit, was this terrible. Um, so we'll revisit all the terribleness on November 16th. The following week, Thanksgiving week proper, um, we will be reviewing, Damu Hollywood will be back. We'll be reviewing Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them on November 22nd. Um, on homecoming night, November 23rd, this is the night where everyone goes out drinking. <laughs> okay? Everyone comes home from college, they go out drinking, and they try not to get a DUI so they can actually make it to Thanksgiving dinner the next day. Uh, what we'll be doing instead, because, you know, I'm not coming home from college, is we will be doing the Metal Hammer of Doom, Metallica, Hardwired, ampersand, to self-destruct, part one. They are releasing a double album. We are going to break that sucker in half. We're going to review the first part on November 23rd. We'll review the second part on November 30th. And that's going to be bookended on Tuesday. We'll be reviewing, uh, which is November 29th, we'll be reviewing the new Disney princess movie. Featuring The Rock. He's not playing the princess, though. He's playing the other guy. We'll be reviewing Moana, and we'll be concluding our look at Harry Potter, finally, on December 1st, uh, with uh, the Dark the dark Hollows, the Dark Wee Hollows, the, the Halloween, the Dark Shadows, whatever the fuck it's called, parts one and two. I'm not bailing you out of that um, one. <laughs> what? what do you mean you're not bailing me out of that one? You're floundering for the appropriate title, whether deliberate or affected, whether affected or <laughs> genuine. I'm not helping you with that one. I don't give a shit. Uh, the last two Harry Potter movies, December 1st, and that'll, wrap, that'll be wrapping up Harry Potter Month here on the Rattle and Broadcasting uh, Network. Robert, Coop, Robert Winfrey, who are you? Robert Winfrey, your plug, sir. All right. Last week, I was part of the Long Road to Ruin, focusing on the Hannibal Lecter series. You can find both of those episodes in the archives. A lot of fun was had. Uh, a lot of you one of those did. Ep- what? A lot of people already did. I haven't seen the numbers yet, so I'll check them after this, just because I'm curious. So check that out if you haven't already. It uh, was a lot of fun. Uh, Friday, the 28th, so last Friday, I staged a temporary return of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy with Benjamin J. Cologne, talking about the antagonists from the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror uh, movies, episodes of that show. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Uh, Getting to geek out about the Simpsons is always good for a laugh from where I sit. So if you're interested in that, give it a listen. We have a lot of fun talking about it. Uh, Various other Simpsons trivia is brought up different directors, different voice actors, their styles, how things play, and lots of praise for the Devil Flanders because Devil Flanders is awesome. 
And uh, this coming Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, I will have live coverage of UFC Fight Night 98. It's the finale of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America Season 3, which no one cares about. But the main event is awesome. Uh, The main event is Rafael Dos Anjos versus Tony Ferguson. It's a tremendous fight. I found your favorite event ever, Mark, for MMA, incidentally. It's coming December 9th. What's that? From Albany, New York, UFC Fight Night 102. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah, yeah. It's It's a terrible, terrible card. I mean, this is a really, really <laughs> terrible card. But the main event is Derek Lewis versus Shamil Abdurahimov, and the co-main event is Francis Ngannou versus Anthony Hamilton. I'm all in. It's a terrible, terrible card that's going to have a lot of terrible, terrible fights. But because the top, because the top two are heavyweights, I know you'll just, you know, cream yourself. Dude, I'm a big Derek Lewis fan. I can't wait. I wouldn't be. He's terrible. I don't know. He's just not very good. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, but this Sunday uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, we'll be reviewing UFC Fight Night 98 and previewing UFC 205. The big one. The UFC finally comes to New York and can get out from under the thumb of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Just in time to cause New York to lose boxing forever. And the new owners get to salivate over Conor McGregor taking all the titles and then taking a year off because he's got enough money to basically tell all of you to F off. (laughs) I'm going to be throwing a party that night. We're going to be having a New York style party. We're going to serve dirty water dogs. We're going to serve New York style pizza, some kraut. It's going to be fantastic. And I'll be able to eat 1% of it. I'm sure your neighbors will be so grateful for that. I don't really have neighbors. <laughs> no, one comes, no one comes out of the house in my neighborhood. Like oh, it's one of those neighborhoods, is it? Yeah. So anyway, this, sun, uh, this coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, review, preview. I get to yell at Conor McGregor, uh, talk about Stephen Thompson, because he's awesome, uh, talk about Joanna Jacek and Karolina Kovalkiewicz because Polish names. Uh, it's a really good card. UFC 205 is a really good card. So we'll be talking about all of that. And uh, again, Mark and I will be back next week to talk about Doctor Strange, which ought to be a lot of fun because Benedict Cumberbatch and Mads Mikkelsen and Tilda Swinton. Uh, and more, importantly, be, more importantly, that'll be election day. If you haven't gone, if you haven't been able to vote uh, like a smart person uh, through early voting, or your state just doesn't allow it, and that's too bad, make sure you go vote. It's very important to vote. If you don't vote, and then the person that you've been complaining about on Facebook becomes president, it's your fault. Uh, vote because it's your civic duty and the right thing to do. And let's all just put our heads down and get through the next four years together, and hopefully we can rectify the terrible, terrible mistake we're about to make. Because I don't care if it's Trump or Hillary. They're both mistakes. And I'm relatively sure their parents would confirm that. Just keep this one thing in mind, and then I'm going to hit the music. All right. Whatever 
whatever happens, just remember, they didn't get to be the nominees by any other means than we voted for them. We, who showed up to the primaries, voted for these two idiots. You, des- you get the government you deserve. Robert, last word? I don't care how they got nominated. In Hillary's case, I imagine it was fraudulent. Uh, I just don't want either of them. And I really wish that everyone would, re- would understand that this is not Trump or Clinton. You have choices. You have options. You have other people to vote for. Don't make this mistake. I know you're going to anyway, but I'm going to tell you all right now. Either of them is a mistake. Don't do it. And with that, Robert and I wish you, till next week, be well, be safe, go vote, and behave.